Welcome to Build, this is Maggie. I'm constantly trying to figure out how to work more efficiently, so I was really excited at the chance to talk to Nir Ayal about distraction. Nir writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. He taught as a lecturer in marketing at the Stanford GSB and the Design School, and he has two best-selling books, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. So today I talked to Nir about his work on distraction, where it shows up in the workplace, and ways we can become indistractable. I hope you enjoy it. Nir, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So I think, of course, I want to talk about your book, Indistractable. I was really excited when we set this up. I had so many questions about it. But I think now, given that so many of us are working from home during this pandemic, I'm sort of even more excited to get your take on the tools and ideas that you had in the book. Where I really want to start is around a theme of identity and framing. It seemed like there was this theme through the book where the labels that we give ourselves and who we believe we are has a huge impact on what we're able to do. So I'd love to hear how you see that theme kind of showing up within work specifically. Oh, man, I'm so glad you picked up on this theme because it is so important. This idea of behavior change is identity change is a really important facet of social sciences that we don't, I don't know if it's it's well understood. I guess we kind of have a notion that self-defeating prophecies and things like that, but I didn't understand how impactful it can be in terms of our personal productivity. And what I found was when it comes to distraction, they're really Most people tend to have two types of responses to distraction. We have what we call the blamers and the shamers. The blamers say it's stuff outside of me, right? It's the iPhone that distracted me. It's the computer. It's the the news. It's the modern world these days. These are the, the things that we hear the blamers saying. But of course, that's futile because you can't change that stuff, right? Like you have no power to change any of those things these companies are not going away. And frankly, distraction has been with the human race for a very, very long time. Plato talked about it 2,500 years ago. So people will find something to distract themselves because they always have. So that's the blamer. The other side is what we call the shamer. And this directly relates to what you're asking about in terms of self-image. The shamer doesn't blame things outside themselves. They shame themselves. They say, oh, you see, there I go again. I'm such a procrastinator. I'm so lazy. This must be because I'm not a morning person. Here I go again. There's something broken with my brain. And having that dialogue, of course, makes it true. And the reason it makes it true is because the more we shame ourselves, we elicit what we call internal trigger, these uncomfortable emotional states. And what do we do when we feel discomfort? We look for escape from this uncomfortable emotional response. So the more shame we feel, we seek an even greater motivation to escape that discomfort. How do we escape that emotional discomfort of shame? With more distraction. <laughs> right. So, so this is where it really becomes a, a self-defeating perception. And I think we see, unfortunately, people making a name for themselves by perpetuating what I think is the most self-defeating idea out there right now when it comes to self-image is that technology is addictive to everyone, that it's hijacking your brain. That is such rubbish. And I think not only is it disrespectful to people who are actually suffering from the pathology of addiction, it is also teaching people what we call learned helplessness. Right, Because if technology is hijacking your brain, I mean, hijacking is what they did to us on 9-11. It's not Candy Crush, for God's sakes. But when we use that kind of language, 
it teaches people that they are powerless. And so what do you do when you feel powerless? You don't do anything about this stupid problem. So most people are not addicted. Now, some people really are pathologically addicted, a very small percentage. The vast majority of us are not addicted. We're just distracted. Right. So then how do you help people who, so let's say that we're on board, we understand that this is sort of like actually within our control. I think especially bridging the gap between like, okay, I can control this and like, how do I actually do that? How do you help people get there? How do we become indistractable? Yeah. And I think especially within this idea of like work and labels and and how you see yourself. Yeah. So there's four steps to becoming indistractable. The first half of my book, Indistractable, is about those four steps and what you can do yourself. Now, that being said, I've had plenty of experience in the business world. And I'll tell you, it's not good enough to just fix yourself. You can become indistractable. And that's wonderful because you're going to set a good example for your organization. And of course, if you're a manager, you're in a, a much better position because you really can influence people in a way that someone who is an individual contributor might not be able to. But the second half of the book is really about how do we change our environments, our interactions with other people to help them or us become indistractable. So there's a whole section on how do we raise indistractable kids. There's a section on how do we have indistractable relationships. And then there's a section on how do we build an indistractable workplace. That's why the book is kind of split in that way between things that you can do yourself and your interactions with other people as well. Maybe it's useful to kind of talk about these things individually, or do you want to go into the workplace specifically? I'd love to talk about the workplace one. And I think especially chat That's something that at least where I work, we use Slack. And I love that you shared in the book some advice from Jason Fried that was about how right now interruptions should be the exception and not the rule. So I would love to hear a little bit more about how we can bring this into the workplace because I think especially now that we're remote, I feel more of the need to leave my notifications on to make myself more available because I don't have the sort of in-person stuff. So I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the quotes that I I love from Jason Fried is that he says that group chat should be like a hot tub, right? You get in and you get out. A hot tub is very nice, but if you stay in it too long, you get pruney and gross. And so you, you have to plan to get in, plan to get out. You don't sit in any synchronous communication channel all day long. It's ridiculous to try and get work done while you have a conference call line going It's ridiculous to think that you can have a Slack channel open all day long. It just doesn't work that well because we have two types of work. We have what we call reactive work and reflective work. Reactive work is the stuff that we have to respond to, the emails, the Slack notifications, the phone calls. That's reactive work. And of course, a good chunk of our day does need to be reactive work. Now, every job has some mix of these two types of work, reactive and reflective work. If you work in a call center, your job is almost all reactive work, right? The phone call rings, you pick it up, you deal with the customer, and you put the phone down, you wait for the next ring. On the other end of the spectrum is the engineer. Their job is almost 100% reflective, where engineers hate it when you bother them in the middle of a coding session because that's where bugs slip in, right? When people are distracted, that's where they make mistakes. And we, we know this, but there's been plenty of research around how this happens. And so it's imperative that whatever your mix is of reactive and reflective work, you schedule and protect that time. Now, most people will find their days, if they don't schedule the time for reflective work, will be overrun by the reactive work. Reactive work for a few reasons. One, there's this social obligation with reactive work. Another person is waiting for you. Or 
more specifically, the fear of someone else waiting for you, which is a really important differentiation between what is actual and what is a perceived uncomfortable emotional state that we're looking to escape from. And the other reason is that reactive work is a lot easier. Let me just crank through a couple emails. Let me just return a couple of phone calls. It's easy. And so we default to it. But that's not where the real work gets done, folks. The real work gets done when we have time to think. And people in general are averse to thinking. We want someone else to think for us. We want to check boxes. We want to just do whatever we can do that's easy and quick. But when we do that, when we respond to the email, when we should be thinking through a project, working on the hard, difficult task, what we're doing is letting distraction trick us into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. When people think of distraction, they think of Facebook and Netflix and YouTube. I argue the number one distraction is the distraction you don't realize is distracting you, namely stuff you think is worky, you think is productive. Let me just return this one email real quick. Let me just do that one thing on my to-do list. If that's not what you plan to do, if you plan to work on that big project, finish that report, whatever it might be, the hard thing you're avoiding, the hard thing you're procrastinating, then even the worky task is distraction. But it's even a worse, more pernicious form of distraction because you don't realize what it is, that it is in fact a distraction. I know I often feel when I fall into that trap, like, oh, I finally, I got some stuff done. Like, that's awesome. I'm productive. You know, I did that thing. I responded to that Slack. I like filed this email. And then I'm kind of like, well, at least I did something. (laughs) Exactly. And of course, this only perpetuates the problem because we are now accepting the fact that we did not do what we said we were going to do. And that's toxic. That is really when it becomes a problem because you know th- this is what's so bad about to-do lists. I go off about to-do lists. I call it the tyranny of the to-do list. And I think it's, for the vast majority of people, the way we use to-do lists is killing us. It's destroying our productivity. And unfortunately, this has been what a lot of people believe. This is how we get things done. We put stuff on a to-do list. And I think what we find back to this idea of self-image and why behavior changes, identity change. Think about it. If you have a to-do list, like I used to have a to-do list, where every day, I had stuff on my to-do list that I would not get done. And so the result of not doing all the things on my to-do list was another day goes by and I didn't do what I said I was going to do. Loser. And so when you compound that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you are teaching yourself that you are not the kind of person that you can rely upon. You don't do what you say you're going to do. And so this is why the to-do list is so tyrannical, why it's why it really does backfire. Because most people don't think of a to-do list the proper way, just is, is to think about it as a temporary repository of things that need to get done by putting them on your calendar. Right? If those things need to get done with any kind of a deadline, right? If it's like, oh, someday I'd like to write a book and here's a good idea for someday, sure. Okay, put it in a list somewhere. But if it's a to-do list, meaning there's some kind of output associated with it. All output has to have input. You can't get output without input. And the input, of course, is the time. So a time box calendar, which is a, a technique that's been shown in thousands of studies to be incredibly effective. I didn't make it up. It's, it's been validated thousands of times. The reason it's so effective is because the goal of a time box calendar is not to finish anything. What do I mean by that? Don't finish anything. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Turns out people who time box a task and consistently do that task without distraction, meaning your only goal is not to finish, your only goal is to work on the task 
for as long as you said you would without distraction, those people, turns out, get more done than the kind of person who keeps a to-do list. Yep. I think as a product person, it's sort of like I'm sweating just thinking about like I shouldn't have a to-do list. I think that's like such a fundamental (laughs) part of how I make sure I don't forget to do stuff. But I think to your point, the calendar thing, I keep a to-do list so that I don't forget all of the things I should do. But then the only things I'm going to do are the things that I will block my calendar for. So like before we got on the phone this morning, I went through my calendar and I was like, okay, here's the three things I'm going to do and I'm going to block these three hours and then I have meetings and whatever. Perfect. So as long as it's it's an intermediary step between putting it on your calendar, that's fine. What doesn't work, most people who use a to-do list, they don't have any kind of synchronization with their calendar. So it's like, hey, I got a big open day and I got to do all this stuff. <laughs> and most of that stuff won't get done. I definitely have that shame though that you were you were mentioning the like my ever growing to do list and then the lists get nested and then hidden and then I sometimes go back and think about how I didn't do all the stuff so I, I'm definitely in that camp as well. Yeah, and you know what the the real tragedy is when we use these to do lists. The problem is that even when we have leisure time, okay, even when we have the time to watch Netflix or play with our kids or chat with a friend. So many of us in the back of our heads were thinking, oh, there's all those things I still didn't finish. I should go be productive. And so even our leisure time we don't enjoy. And so that's why this time boxing technique is so much more effective because you can time box the fun stuff too, right? So if you plan in your day to watch a movie on Netflix, well, that's traction, right? Not distraction. Anything else that is not what you plan to do is distraction. Anything that you plan to do is traction. So even the time you plan to waste is not wasted time as long as it's done with intent. That's what you wanted to do and you can enjoy it 100%. Okay, I want to circle back quickly to something that you mentioned about the social obligation of responding to people and also the fear that someone might be waiting for you. I want to dig into that because I think especially with things like tools like Slack, I feel this a lot, which is someone sent me a message and they they must need something right away. And if I don't respond, like, are they waiting? So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you suggest people like understand and manage that. Sure. So the first part is to ask yourself, when do people really need a reply by? And what we find is that for the vast majority of people, this is an excuse. (laughs) That our perception of how quickly someone needs a reply is really masking the fact that we are looking for a reason why we can't do hard stuff. (laughs) That there are very few things that people can't wait 30 minutes, 45 minutes, right? Is it so urgent someone can't wait 30 minutes? And look, if it really is super urgent, are they going to email you? If your house is on fire, are they going to email you? No, they're going to call you. So what do we do? If there's some house on fire emergency, people have our number. And when we're doing our focused work, we turn our phone onto do not disturb while driving. Now, do not disturb while driving is an amazing function that very few people actually use on their phone. Every Android device now, every iPhone has it built in. With do not disturb while driving, you push one button. And if anybody calls or texts you, they will receive an auto-generated reply that says, I can't talk right now, but if this is urgent, text me the word urgent. Okay, so they type in the word urgent. And if they type that in, then their message comes through. So if it really is, oh my God, house on fire, you need to call me right away, the message will get through. I've been using this technique for about three years. Nobody's ever texted in with urgent because they can wait for 20, 30 minutes. It's going to be all right. And the cost of not giving yourself 
the 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour of time to think is so much more than the need for the perception of urgency. Because again, if it's really an emergency, people will use another channel to contact you when it really, really is an emergency. Now, if your job is 100% reactive, well, then what are you doing looking for reflective time, right? Like if you work in a call center, yeah, you need to be on call. That is your entire job. But if your job requires any semblance of reflective work, does your job require you to think, to strategize, to plan? Well, you can't do that if you're constantly reacting to stuff. You have to carve out the time and defend it with your life or the work isn't going to get done. Or you know where it gets done? It gets done on nights, on weekends, and our kids pay the price, our bodies pay the price, our sleep pays the price, and that's not right. This is why so many people do work outside of work because they're not defending that time for real focused work at work. How do you help people who definitely need to be doing that time thinking or spending that time thinking, but who might feel like they are not totally in control of their own time? So there are, you know, I work at a startup, there might be founders, there might be bosses, you know, other people, people with dependencies on them, they might feel responsible to like, how do you help people sort of navigate defending that time? Terrific question, which is why I alluded to earlier about how the book is split into stuff that you can do for yourself to become indistractable, and what about these other contexts, these other environments. So here's the thing. We tend to blame the technology. We say, oh, you know, the Slack channels and the emails and the phone calls, that's what keeps me constantly checking my devices because of these obligations I have to other people. Let's go back a few years. So I remember when I was a kid, we would get phone calls during dinner, right? This was before cell phones and computers and all that. Imagine to yourself, let's say your boss calls you at 9 p.m. on a Friday night when you're having dinner with your family. Your boss calls you at 9 p.m. Is it the phone's fault or your boss's fault? Or more precisely, the culture that makes it okay for your boss to call you at 9 p.m. on a Friday night? Clearly, it's not the telephone's fault. It's a company culture problem, which is why the section in the book, which I think is probably the most important section of the book, maybe second only to how to raise indistractable kids, the section is titled, Why Workplace Distraction is a Symptom of Dysfunctional Culture. Because what I learned in my five years of research is that the problem isn't distraction per se. The problem is we can't talk about the problem. That is the problem. <laughs> what we find is that companies where people can't raise their hand and say, you know what, I don't know this, I'm not sure here, but it seems like I'm really not able to think and come up with novel solutions to hard problems, which is what every knowledge worker does for a living, right? We come up with knowledge solutions for hard problems. I'm not able to do my job because I'm constantly distracted. If you can't raise your hand at your company and voice that concern, and I know why, I'll tell you exactly why people don't do it, because they're afraid of getting fired. They're afraid of being labeled as lazy, as not a team player. And if you can't talk about that problem, I got, I got news for you. Distraction is the least of your worries. Because what we find is that companies who can't talk about this problem of distraction, which is directly affecting productivity, workplace happiness, retention, all this bad stuff comes when we feel distracted at work. If they can't talk about this problem, they got all kinds of other problems. Poor customer service, sexual harassment issues, uh, poor complacency issues, all kinds of stuff doesn't get talked about at these companies who are suffering from distraction. Distraction at work is the canary at the coal mine. And so once we can open the discussion about this problem, and I, I profiled two companies 
Boston Consulting Group is one of them where I actually used to work that made this amazing transformation from being a very distracted place to work where people were burning out, very high employee turnover, to now it's become one of the best places to work in America, according to Glassdoor, because they made this huge cultural shift in giving people the what's called psychological safety to talk about this problem as well as other, any, uh, many other problems. Yeah, I think one symptom that you called out in the book that I thought was really helpful and a really good one was, you know, I think some people might say, well, oh, yeah, I can definitely talk about that at work. Like, that's no problem. But the sign when everyone has to be invited to every meeting, I love that one because I think that's one of my least favorite things that happens is when people just start adding other people into a meeting because everyone has to be there. And then there isn't someone who's necessarily responsible for the decision. And then it just becomes this sort of like weird committee thing. And I just love that you call that out as like a specific sign of this type of dysfunction. I mean, like just hearing about you say that gives me chills. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we've all been to so many. And this is this is what's so important, I think, about this topic of distractions that when people think about distraction, they only think about the cell phones and the Slack channels. How many stupid meetings do we go to that didn't need to be called that are incredibly distracting? But we don't think of a meeting as being a source of distraction. We only think about the pings and dings on our phones, whereas we waste way more time statistically. You know, there was a survey that found that 80% of survey respondents said the number one source of distraction in the workplace wasn't computers, wasn't cell phones, wasn't Slack channels. It was other people was the number one source of distraction. And so we have to hack back those distractions as well. Yeah. And I think one thing that I've run into, though, on this topic is that, okay, so we recognize that you may probably should invite everyone to everything. And then you have to decide who to invite. And then there's this weird sort of feelings and political situation that you get into. And it's like, well, you don't need to be in this conversation. And then like taking a team from operating that way to operating in a different way is kind of like a weird transition. Yeah. Well, I think it comes back to why we are having a meeting. A lot of meetings are not held for the right reasons. Let me tell you the number one reason for frivolous meetings. The number one reason for a frivolous meeting is that the person calling the meeting doesn't want to do the work. Number one reason is that the person would rather hear themselves and other people talk than to do the goddamn work yourself. Right. Or the work is like, well, I scheduled the meeting. Right, exactly. But I don't want to actually have to think, right? Again, people are averse to thinking. Thinking takes work. And so the point of a meeting is one thing, to gain consensus. That's it. The only reason to meet is to gain consensus around a decision. Not to brainstorm, not to strategize. Those things should be done individually. The data shows that people do their best brainstorming. This is a popular myth. People think, well, let's all get together and brainstorm. Bad idea brainstorming is best done on your own or with one other person. Brainstorming as a group is a huge waste of time. We need to stop doing it. Here's what happens when people brainstorm in meetings. The loudest and most senior person, typically a male person, dominates the conversation at the expense of everyone else's ideas and contributions. That is reality. Brainstorming is best done on your own, submitted to the person who is responsible for the project, for the decision that needs to be made, that person then calls a meeting to gain consensus around the decision that they are going to make to see if there are any bases not covered. That's it. It's an, it's an approval process. That's the point of these meetings. Unless there's a very different type of meeting where it's about voicing concerns, voicing uh, thoughts, that's a different type of meeting. For example, the kind of meeting where people can talk about what's not going well, to give feedback, 
that can be done as a group. But again, that's something that then can be time boxed and we know exactly what kind of work. We're, that's a data collection process versus more of the approval consensus building process. Yeah. And I think it's interesting over the past couple of weeks, as our company Drift was totally co-located and now obviously we're working from home and the transition from, I think the first couple of weeks, it was like overload on Zoom calls and meetings. And now we've kind of swung back towards our, we have a no meeting culture and we've swung back. And what we do is we end up making videos for each other. And so we do asynchronous things and we'll like, I'll make a video and send it out to the team about like whatever I'm working on, whatever I learned, and they can consume that whenever the time is right for them. So we're trying to reduce the amount of like time stealing we're doing from each other's calendars. Absolutely. So this this is where, you know, the difference between synchronous communication and asynchronous communication is so important. Again, if the point of a meeting is to gain consensus, well then, yeah, we need that for a synchronous communication channel, like a phone call, a physical meeting, a Slack channel even. But for asynchronous communication, everything else that's not gaining consensus, we, we don't have to have a meeting for, <laughs> right? Send an email is just fine. <laughs> Okay, so I have one other question I wanted to ask. You mentioned earlier that it's really not about the technology. It's about the motivations and behaviors that various technology is allowing to happen or not getting in the way of. And so as someone who is a product person, so it's I'm part of the teams, obviously, who are like making the products. What do you think that the responsibilities are of software teams in particular to think about the types of distraction that we might be enabling in our products? Like, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I think it behooves us to build the kind of products that do what people want them to do. And I think there's been a, this notion, at least in the media, I, I, you know, I think people who build product know this is not true, but there's this notion in the media that, oh my God, technology is so good. It can get people to do anything the product maker wants. You know, look, Facebook is making people go on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. That's the response of someone who has actually built product for a living, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I wish my users did exactly what I wanted them to do. Exactly. Exactly. And I wrote, you know, my first book was called Hooked. It was about how to build habit-forming products. And people in the media who didn't read the book and never built product in their life interpret it as, oh my gosh, look, you can, you know, people are puppets on a string and you can make people do whatever they want. That is totally not true. If that was the case, you know, we would all be exercising every day and, and eating perfectly and super productive. It's really hard to design the kind of products that people use, even or especially when they want to do what your product is helping them do, right? Like how many of us would love to have an app help us exercise more or eat healthy or save money, but people still don't do it because of lack of good product design and people are complicated. And so building a product that gets people to always do what you want them to do is really, really hard. So the long and the short of it, I think, is that we want to design the kind of products that serve users as opposed to users serving the product. So this will flush out if you like it or not People, if your product is annoying and cumbersome and distracting, then people will stop using it or they'll find an alternative to that product or service. So it, it behooves us to make the kind of products and services that improve people's lives by becoming a good habit in their lives. If it's a bad habit, then people find ways around it, right? They'll find something that's less distracting, less of a burden on their day. This is really the topic of my first book about, well, how do you know that you interrupt people in the right way? This goes back to knowing that when we send someone what we call an external trigger, a notification, an email, something in their environment that prompts them to action, it has to be closely coupled with the internal trigger. So the moment you're most likely to have some uh, a notification or an external trigger appreciated and responded upon when we can closely couple it with the internal trigger, the internal trigger being the feeling, the uncomfortable emotional state that the user is looking to escape. 
So if we can closely couple those two things, that's when the external trigger is appreciated and doesn't feel like a distraction. It feels like something that helps the user do what they really want to do. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a great place to kind of wrap this up because I think it all comes back to what people are looking to do and what you're trying to enable for your user and the outcome you're trying to create. And if you continue to focus on that, it's probably going to be harder to build these things that are counterproductive for those people. Right. That over time, they, they'll stop using it <laughs> if it's not doing the job they want. All right, Nir, we're almost out of time, but I have one last question I wanted to ask you. I wanted to know, like, what are you reading or listening to audiobooks, podcasts, whatever these days that's helped that's sort of inspiring you or that you're really enjoying? Oh, boy. I'm always listening to one thing or another. Right now, one of the things I talk about in the book is how there's this myth that you can't multitask. I know not a lot of people think you cannot multitask, but it turns out that's not exactly right, that you can do what's called multi-channel multitasking. So as long as you are using different sensory channels, and we know this to be true, right? We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can jog while we're having a conversation with a friend. And so what I like to listen to, I actually, I've been trying to keep up on the news, but only during certain times of the day. And I have a rule where I don't read news articles online. I save them to an app called Pocket. And then there's another app I use called Voice Dream that will read the Pocket articles to me. And so, and my rule is I only get to listen to them while I'm exercising in the gym, taking a walk. That's when, well, I'm not exercising in the gym. It's ex- I used to say exercising in the gym. Now it's exercising in my home. Yeah. <laughs> but I still take uh, walks outside six feet away from anybody else. So I only allow myself to listen to those articles when I'm doing something else that's that's healthy, like exercising. Yeah, I find that my, actually my podcast listening has greatly gone down because I'm not commuting anymore. Now I'm kind of like when I'm cleaning or whatever, that's when I'm trying to pick that stuff back up. Yeah, yeah. Apparently you're not alone. I've heard a lot fewer people are listening to podcasts these days because they're not commuting, (laughs) but they can replace it with exercise time. All right, Nir, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. This has been super, super interesting. My pleasure. Thank you so much.